We always like to take time together and study the Bible. So if you have a Bible, please, I'd like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. Um, I had a conversation this week that led me to think of something as you're turning there uh, that's kind of important about what we're doing. And I just like to say out loud, we live in a time where knowledge it, it, it can be kind of an idol and it can be a crutch. We can hide behind it. Um, and so this isn't just a knowledge time, all right? This isn't a, I'm not a professor. This isn't a classroom. Um, this is spiritual formation time. When we, when we open the Bible, what it is is we're allowing God to use the Bible to speak and shape our lives and our thinking and our hearts. And so we open it up together and interact with it and think through stuff together as a community. And over time, it's just to form us into the image and likeness that we're always intended to be uh, the image and likeness of God, and so um, that we really see through Christ. And so just wanted to say that in case there was some confusion as to why we spend so much time reading and talking through uh, the Bible here together. It's also why we're never done, okay? There's, there's no, ver- we read all the verses, and now we're done with, you know, this is an ongoing, living, and active time where we are subjecting ourselves to God speaking into our lives and into our hearts. And so if your hearts are open to that, I just want to invite you into it. Um, So yeah, happy to say we're going to start uh, our study again into the Gospel of Mark, which we started in January, but took a break around Memorial Day. And so is anybody excited to read a little bit from Mark? Anybody remember that? Remember Mark? I was thinking about maybe doing a group chat uh, this morning, one of my patented group chats, but it might be a little too crowded in here for that. I don't know. But take 10 seconds and just, if you were here for the first five months of this year and, and you were interacting with Mark, and think about it. Was there a verse or a story that kind of has been lingering in your heart and mind or that's something that God's used to speak to you? And I just want you to think and just maybe consider saying out loud one or two of you what that verse or that story was. No pressure. I can do a a recap of the first eight chapters of Mark. It's just more boring for me. So uh, maybe one of you could just speak that out. Is there anything that you in the first half of Mark just were excited about or, or a verse or a story that spoke to you? Yeah. Thank you, Dean. The Syrophoenician woman for me, too. I mean, that was a, a story right in that middle section there about um, insiders and outsiders. It's been a big theme for me. When I, when I read the, the parable of the farmer, and at the end of that, there was uh, this statement from Isaiah where Jesus said, I speak, I've, I speak in parables so that those on the outside, though they see, will not perceive, and though they hear, they will not understand. And we see all these stories of people who are supposed to be on the outside seeing and perceiving and understanding, challenging our concept of who's really in and who's really out, only to find in chapter 8 the disciples themselves. What does Jesus say to them? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisee. And they're like, okay, there's some bad bread that the Pharisees have. Jesus is hungry. We didn't bring bread. And he's like, why are you talking about bread? Don't you, do you have eyes but do not see? Do you have ears but do not perceive? It's like 
They're on the outside, the ultimate insiders. Thanks, Dean, for that. Is any other, um, any other stories or verses that were on your heart? Yes, parable of the sower, same for me. Always trying to cultivate and figure out what soil I am or, or what percentage of me is good soil and bad or, or what are the likelihoods that there's some rain coming, you know, because I'm feeling a little dusty myself. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, that was a great day. Remember that guy kept saying amen over and over and Rod couldn't, couldn't concentrate and he had to shut it down. I know, I remember this because it was like as if someone was coming in through the ceiling, you know, and like you have sympathy for Jesus in that story where you had to just roll with it. All right, so I'd like to invite you into a new section of Mark. This is really the second half of Mark, if you will, and and. and what I like to view this as, chapter 8 to chapter 10, as a Markin sandwich. This is a term that we've been talking about uh, earlier this year. I hope you're hungry. A Markin sandwich is one where uh, Mark will use a story or a phrase on either end of a section to sort of uh, prove a point with the stuff that's going on in the middle of that sandwich, right? The meat. And so uh, what I see here as a sandwich from chapter 8 to chapter 10, bracketed by two stories of blindness, right? When we get to chapter 10, you know, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He has to make that right turn at Jericho. And there's a blind, homeless man named Bartimaeus. And the crazy thing is, is he can see more clearly than anybody. He can see who Jesus was from miles away. And he calls it out. There he is. He has this act of, of humility by throwing off all of his belongings and racing after Jesus. We also begin this sandwich with a story of a man who was healed from blindness sort of in a progressive sense. He saw a little bit. First he could see this like trees walking around, right? You know, he's... Probably pretty excited for that. Maybe could get glasses now. But then uh, Jesus heals him the rest of the way and he could see clearly. This wasn't because Jesus was like tired, unable to do it right the first time. This is because um, I think this was meant to be a picture of where the disciples were at themselves. Where many of us find ourselves oftentimes. Sometimes we can see some of it. They can see, Jesus, you are the Christ, you know. But they don't see the full picture. This is going to be illustrated at least three, maybe three and a half times in this section where Jesus specifically says to them in 831, 931, 1035, where he says, I am going to Jerusalem to die. And three times they say, well, maybe they're very, very answers to that, maybe that's not true, or, or they switch the subject and show like what they're actually hoping for. And then three times, Jesus teaches them what's actually important to him and twists the screws even more on what's going to happen. It's time to evaluate how blind are we, or what's blindness, what's the role of that in, in how I see Jesus in the world? What are some things that I'm doing or thinking that's causing me to see less and less clearly what Jesus is doing in this world, where he's going, where he wants to take us. Did you know 
Even as a disciple of Christ, there's things that we can think and do that works against being able to see what Jesus is doing in this world, what he wants to do in our lives. So with that being said, I'd like to read to you from Mark chapter 9 and even a little bit of chapter 8 as well. So if you would turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to go back into chapter 8. To that first prediction here in 831, and then read through the following story. This was in the context of Caesarea Philippi. He began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed. But after three days, he'll rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for the gospel, will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, If I tell you the truth, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, he took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. (laughs) They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, they looked around and no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rise from the dead meant, and asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. But why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything that they wished just as it was written about him. Amen. This is one of those stories, transfiguration. Growing up in the church, you know, this is a story that you just know, okay? This is... But if you think about it, it's one of the craziest stories in the life of Jesus. But I was thinking about it this week. I can't think of the last time I talked to somebody about this story. I mean, how could it be so (laughs) just 
full of all this miraculous stuff. And like, it just never comes up. And I think for me, it's just because I don't know what to do with it. Where do I place it? How, it's so out of place. And I've never really take t- taken time to let it sink in why this story is here. Think about just even the, the elements of the story. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus go up a mountain. It's not that crazy. This happens from time to time, okay? But suddenly, this is in the passive voice, okay? Something happened to Jesus. He, he, he was changed. That's that word transfigured means transformed. All of a sudden, he's shining, okay? What is that? Is he becoming a star? Is he turning into an angel? There's not even words that they can use. He's like more bleachy than any a person could do. I mean, they're just trying to say what it looked like. When I was a kid, we used to say he went super saiyan. Because of a cartoon, if you know, you know. And, um, and, and so then, what does that mean? Is this something that Jesus can do or does or happens to him? Not only that, Jesus has a conversation with some friends. What? Elijah and Moses, what are you? What is that? One of them has been de- uh, not, not seen for eight hundred years, and one another fifteen hundred years ago. I mean, who are these? Is this something Jesus could just summon and just do, or or what do they? Does he have like a question for that? Is this some encouragement? I mean, Matt Kenny said earlier this week in our Bible study, like, how did the disciples even know who it was? They have a picture. You know, they're comparing, you know, I like to imagine Jesus did like a big hello. You know, the big hello is for people like me who can't remember everybody's names. So you need friends who will like say their name in like a big way when, they're, when they hug them. You know, like, Moses, hey, how's it going? You don't look a day under 1,500 years old. I mean, how's it, Mr. Sinai's here and you brought with you Elijah. The big runner from Carmel to Horeb. Wow. It's talking about chariots of fire. Like, don't tell Eric Little. So um, maybe that's how they found out who this was, right? And, and they're talking. And, and what is the meaning of this? Not only that, the cloud of, I mean, the gl- cloud with the voice. I mean, this is something that you never see anymore, right? This was big in the, the Exodus story, Exodus 24, or even maybe the cloud by day kind of life that they lived in Solomon's temple. You remember that big moment where the cloud showed up, the, the sad story in, Exodus, in Ezekiel 10 where the cloud and the glory and all that left. I mean, what is that? Just God somewhere is saying, cue the cloud. I, I'm bringing it back, you know, and you hear that voice. This story is heavily associated when you, when you hear references of it with glory. Like this moment of glory in Jesus' life. And the danger with it being so overt is that we could just go down all the rabbit trails and all the connections and see all the cool uh, pieces that are at play here and see all this stuff coming together without asking, like, what is the meaning of this story, especially as it's being told by the disciples? Or is it just going to stay in a place of just arbitrary significance? So, like, this happened. Wow. But it it leads me to think about glory in general. What is glory? Is it just 
shining? Is it just light? No, I mean, that is a part of when we talk about glory, like Jesus is in glory here. He has, he's clothed in glory. There's a radiance. But glory is about significance. It's about weight. It's about value. And so what I want to do is just play my card right now and just talk about how this, um, this story is validating the glory of Christ. Because I don't think that this is disconnected from the story that is preceding it. That's why I read that. In all of the appearances of this story in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you can see Matthew 17, Luke 9, Mark 9, um, they all follow the same statement. What if our thinking about glory was shifted in this moment to always be preceded by the conversation that, that they just had? What if the glory of Christ is always going to be connected to the message of the cross? Now, if you don't buy that or if you think that that's too much of a stretch here, that's fine. But my, my worry then would be is that we would start to believe that there's something more significant, more glorious, more important to listen to than that message. And I'm just not willing to go there. I'm getting to a point in my life where I do think I'm resonating so much with the Apostle Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 18 when he said, when I was amongst you, I sought to know one thing, and it was Christ crucified. There's a lot of other things we could focus on. There's a lot of other things that say this is glory, and this is significant, and this matters. But what if in this story, all of this stuff converged and came together to validate what he just said? This is who I am, the one who is going to Jerusalem to die. This is the type of Messiah that I am. And these are the type of followers that are going to follow me. And if he was at like a one before that, this dial just got turned all the way up after that, where you start to see him very, very clearly. As bright and as clear as it can be, there he is. And you have Validation with these people and validation with these vo this voice. And if, that, if that's resonating with you at all right now, then the question is, can we listen to the voice where he said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. There's a lot of things we can listen to. A lot of things that we can put into our ears and put into our brains and into our hearts that form us and shape us into their likeness, into their ideologies, and into their whatever they're thinking about. Do you have a priority, though, or some sort of ratio set up to where you can say, I'm going to listen to him? What did he even say? Well, that's why I read this. He's in a, a situation where... Um, He's in this really outrageous place in the northern part of Israel, Caesarea Philippi, and he has a conversation with his disciples. Who do, who do you say I am, ultimately, is what he asks them. And they say, we think you're the Messiah. They see a little bit. What kind of Messiah? Well, they have an expectation as to what that Messiah is going to look like. And it's not going to look like one that goes to Jerusalem and dies. 
So right now, if we're starting to follow the disciples around listening to Jesus, one of the first things that happens um, that contributes to blindness is when we have expectations that don't line up with the expectations that Jesus has laid out for us. We're not listening to him. We're listening to our expectations wherever they came from. They have an expectation. He's not going to suffer. Peter takes him aside and, and, and speaks sternly to him. Probably sounds something like this. What are you talking about? Don't beat yourself up like that, Jesus. You're the man. We're going to go and we're going to win. We're going to fight. This is, this, is, this is all working out. I'm not going to let that happen to you. And he takes, Jesus, or takes Peter then and puts him back with everybody and says, that is in line with the ruler of this present evil age. Satan, I'm putting all of that behind me. I am not going to line up with it. That's going to be in the opposite direction as me, actually. If there's any expectation that you have in your heart, that you have in your ears, that you're listening to, that says, we can do it without a cross, ask yourself, where did that come from? We can do it without bearing a cross of our own, without following Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, without actually going after him in this way, in a visible way, carrying our cross, a visible display of humility and sacrifice and self-donation and mercy, forgiveness. Listen to him. Maybe you're, you've been listening to for a while a voice saying, um, my expectation uh, is not that I will have a cross. I will, my marriage won't have a cross. I won't have to display any of these values in this, in this trajectory. Or my workspace or, you know, that's different. There's no visible display of, of who I'm following there. That's a different space where I turn into a different value system. Or my politics, or how I what I believe about this country, or what I'm supposed to be in this city, and 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 who you know who we're allowing to to be around us. Sometimes we can start to listen to other voices that say it's okay to not have a cross in these areas. It's okay to not display who we're following in these areas, and that is something to really evaluate. People, <laughs> is that a pattern that's following? the ruler of the present evil age that is seeking to divide us, seeking to destroy us, to kill, steal, and destroy, that is seeking to set us against one another, that look at each other as threats. What if we listen to him, the one who said, follow me in this, and if you follow me in this and not seek to save your life, but lose it for me and for the gospel, I will promise you resurrection life. Maybe it's been a while since you felt the resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead in you, but then maybe it's also been a while since you have walked the path carrying a cross. And maybe today's a day where you say, I'm gonna pick it back up and I'm gonna turn and say, get behind me, Satan. As you do that, I can tell you this will be a moment where then very, very soon you will start to see Jesus shine like you've never seen him shine before. The glory of God. Glory of God is a big, big topic, so just a little side note here. 
You ever wonder what it means when they say the glory of the Lord is co- was going to cover the face of the earth as the water covers the sea? Or what we have all fallen short of the glory of God. This is, this is an indication that glory is attached to, I think, uh, the way we follow God. Displaying his glory means we follow his rule and his leadership in our life. And so the more we can display the glory of God, this is the vision that the prophets gave us, that there will come a day where everybody is going to display the glory of God as the waters covers the sea. Everybody is going to be walking this path of cruciformity. And it all starts with listening to Jesus. But what about Elijah and Moses? (laughs) Great question. Mark just uh, puts these people here. They, he doesn't say what they're talking about. He just puts them as a picture here. Mo- Moses and Elijah. Okay, so here's the thought that I have on this. Um, these people represent some major pieces of the story of Israel and, and God's story. When you talk about Moses, even, even in the New Testament, you hear people say, Moses said, or, or they'll reference the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and they'll just say, what did Moses say? Moses gave you this. Um, and so Elijah could also be a figure as he's standing there as a, a prophet. Now this looks like a picture of the shorthand uh, discussion about what their Bible. When you reference their Bible, you would say the law and the prophets. Jesus is always getting accused of not being in continuity with the law and the prophets. Especially after a statement like he just made, there's a lot of confusion. Wait, wait, wait a minute. This is not a part of our hermeneutic. Okay, that's the word for our interpretation of the scripture. You can see that. As they're walking down the mountain, they're like, um, what did he mean by the Son of Man is going to rise from the dead? This isn't to say they don't know what rising from the dead means. Those are just words. They know dead. They know rise. Okay, this is, they know what that means. Look at John 11, right, when he talks to Martha. Lazarus will be raised in the day of the resurrection. Right? They know about being raised from the dead. Jesus did that with a little girl, chapter 6. And so they're talking about why is the son of man going to die? <laughs> he doesn't need to rise from the dead because he's never going to die. This isn't a part of our interpretation. Thus, they go right into the Elijah, Torah, scholars thing where they say our, our teachers of the law tell us it's going to look this way. Their hermeneutic is saying it's going to look different than this. What, what's all this suffering talk? What's this dying talk? It's a very tempting um, reality to live in this. And it, it was just as prevalent in the time of Christ it is, as it is now. I mean, as long as we're listening to Jesus, remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He anticipated this same conversation where he said, you know, blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of false things against you on my account. What's he say next? You're the light of the world. Stay shiny. You are the salt of the earth. Stay salty. Then the next line, he's anticipated. What are you talking about? Suffering. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. David Bivens, probably one of the most, I think, underrated New Testament scholars of our day. And in his book, Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, he has a chapter on this line where he talks about the rabbinic Hebrew expression, 
Levatel and Lekayem, which just simply means in English, abolish and fulfill. But in their culture, this is his suggestion, it, it means you misinterpreted that or you properly interpreted that. When, when someone would be interacting with the scripture and using their discernment, you could say to them, you just abolished it. Okay, there, there are sites for this and all kinds. So imagine Jesus is saying, don't think that I have come to misinterpret this. I have come to perfectly interpret this. And he's always running into conversations where people are saying, I don't like it. I don't think that that is correct. That's untrue. What about this verse? What about that verse? So what if Moses and Elijah are here to send us a picture and a message to say, if you think that, your, that our hermeneutic is not in line with this guy, the shiny guy standing in the middle of us two, we are with him. Look at us. We are here. We're friends. We're together. This is a, we are not saying different things. We are not uh, separate. We are on the same path. This is important because you will be tempted by the ruler of this present evil age to use Bible verses to exclude the cross. It's been happening ever since the wilderness wandering with or the wilderness uh, fasting day. What, what did Satan say to Jesus? Well, what about this verse? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you test this? And how about this verse? And, and, and try and subvert the path that he was on. That's what they're saying to him. Jesus, these verses, no, no, no. That's not, that's not how this is going to work out. Listen to him. What if the law and the prophets and every other biblical witness was standing there saying to them and saying to us, no, listen to him. He's at the center of this whole thing. What he is doing is what we have been talking about and looking for this whole time. The push comes to shove when we start to evaluate structures and systems about verses that we have in our hearts that could lead us away from the cross in our own life. I mean, just ask yourself, has the Bible ever been used to hurt people? Has the Bible, have verses ever been put together in ways that subjugate certain groups of people or, 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 or ways to push women down or ways to hurt uh, or, or make threats out of other people in this world? And ask yourself, is my hermeneutic one that says, I am going to escape the cross in my life. You have been given the dignity of discernment and being able to be a Bible interpreter, one who has the verses. And, and, and God knows that you're going to be in enigmatic situations in this world where you have to think and decide, what's the path that I choose? How is God's authority going to work out in my life here? And I think it would just be good to ask yourself, when I have two options, is there one of them? That, that says to me, choose this one because it will help you avoid the cross that you are meant to carry. It will put someone else on the cross, perhaps. It'll justify not forgiving. It'll justify all kinds of ways of looking at other people. I would be very skeptical of that hermeneutic. And I think if we brought that up that mountain, that Moses and Elijah would say, you didn't hear that from me. Listen to him. When he says to you, love your enemy. 
when he says to you, my commandment is that you will love one another as I have loved you. That's what I want you to do. When he says, this is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples. Listen to him when he says, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to walk this path with visible signs out in our lives, in the world of humility and sacrifice, forgiveness, mercy. Listen to him. Hear the voice from the cloud. Last thing I'd like to comment on is uh, Peter's inclination to build the structure there, right? Um, it's kind of weird. I know that there's a lot of things that we could do with this, and I want you to know that I know that, so that when I skip all of that, you won't get distracted, okay? <laughs> I'm a tour guide here, and we're, we're going to stay on the path. When he says shelter, this word can uh, imply all kinds of different things. But one of the things that it can imply is just shelter, okay, or, or <laughs> structure, what I would say is that this looks like Peter is just saying, hey, I want to camp out here. I want to stay here. This is an inclination that I think many of us know well. When we're in a spot that looks like power or, or comfort or that looks like something that's, that we can use to our advantage, we want to stay there. We want to preserve it and keep it just like how it is. It's good that we're here. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that this isn't a part of my life. There's a lot of times where I'm like, Jesus, are you really calling us in this direction? Is this really where you want to go? Because it seemed like way safer in this way. And, and I, based just on my personality, this is what I do. I try and situate myself in like comfortable positions. Like I'm like Peter. Let's build structures here and stay here. But what if this could contribute to blindness what if this could be something that could cause us to not see where Jesus actually wants us to go? Where he wants to take us? Every time this story is told in the Synoptic Gospels, it is followed by the same story. Where Jesus goes down the mountain and meets a child who is being tormented by evil. And they're struggling trying to figure this out. And Jesus says, you have to pray. Because if we stay up on that mountain and we build our structures and, safe, and keep it safe, what that ultimately says to God in the end of the age is this, I do not trust you. If you're calling me to walk on this path with you, how about we just stay here and not? And trust is a hard thing to give and, it's, and it's, it involves a lot of prayer and it involves following our shepherd but that is the road that we are on. The, avoid the temptation to just stay in a place that feels comfortable and feels safe. And walk, into the, and walk down that mountain into the valley, into the dangerous place where there's all kinds of people who need freedom and need forgiveness and need to be healed. You are welcomed into that with Jesus as his followers. soon as he says this, a cloud comes around them and the voice speaks out and says, no, 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 listen to him. And no faster does that happen that the disciples open their eyes and they see Jesus, only Jesus. And if you're in a place where you feel like it's been a while, 
Like you've set up a structure in a safe place and you don't even know Jesus hasn't been here in a long time. And maybe it's time to just refocus and open your eyes to just Jesus and get back to a place where he's the only thing that we are trusting. He's the only one who we're listening to. And we can start there as we develop in our discipleship with Christ. Those are all the thoughts I have today, so I'd just like to invite you to a time of prayer and um, evaluate what the Spirit's doing in our hearts. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. If there's any of us who have been choosing to save our souls and choosing to just Well, then just, just tell us what the cost is going to be today. What good is it for a man to gain everything but lose his soul? Jesus, we know that you have displayed to us with brilliance and with glory a promise of resurrection for those who die on crosses. And so we pick up our cross and follow you into that. If there's a resurrection power that can be just, just given uh, today, in marriages, in individuals, in friendships, hearts, that, they, that power would be evident even now. If there's any deadness, um, speak to that in a way that only you can, especially for, for those of us who are just feeling that call. If there's any of us who feel like we've kind of gotten stuck in the weeds with our hermeneutic and sort of feel like in contradiction all the time. Like there's, there's a way to study and read the Bible that leads us away from you. The Savior, like a shepherd, call us back with your voice, back to your word and your call and your unified message of the kingdom of heaven. What if this church could be a place that is known by being a people who love the way that you love. If there's any of us who've been feeling just afraid to step forwards in the path to follow you in your kingdom, would you speak to that and just say, trust me. Just tenderly guide us forwards and say, just trust me. We're going to go into a scary place here, but we are going to go with the power of God and though the darkness might surround us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. It has not, it will not overcome it. And there will be, there will be healing and resurrection in this place. Jesus, we trust you and we're following you.